You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I am joined by anthropologist Madza Fidia Virgins in the Department of Anthropology. And uh, I didn't butcher that, right? No. No, okay. Uh, Madza is originally from Brazil, correct? Yes. Yes, and uh, now getting a PhD in anthropology here at Berkeley. Yes. Yes. And you've had a pretty unique, you know, a unique uh, voyage from Brazil to anthropology, (laughs) Brazil to California, I should say, because your background is actually in the biosciences and in neuroscience, correct? In in genetics, I would say, even though I was studying neurodegenerative disease, I would say that the main focus was really uh, genetics and molecular biology. Genetics and molecular biology. So you were in Brazil. You got your undergraduate degree, and was your undergrad in genetics as well? or It was in biomedical sciences, but really the track was something called medical genetics. So anything related to genetic diseases, uh, and my speciality was really the neurodegenerative diseases. But the overall field was really biomedical sciences. And how did you get interested in the biomedical sciences? When I finished uh, high school, I'll, you know, like smart kid people think, go to law school, go to med school. And I didn't want to do med school, so I thought I'm going to do something close so that everybody's happy. <laughs> and I decided to do biomedical sciences. I wanted to do research. Uh, I decided to do biomedical sciences, and then I did. So it was more like trying to fulfill all the interests of my family and myself. <laughs> well, that's good. That's actually pretty nice of you to consider what your what your family's interested in i i kind of was just like hey yeah. i don't care what you want i'm going to do i'm going to do this but so you were interested in research did you do research as an undergrad yes in my senior year i was lucky enough to work with uh, the biggest name in gen- uh, medical genetics in brazil professor joao monteiro de pina neto uh, he's the university of sao paulo and he offered me in my last year to do an internship with him and this is how I actually decided to do my master in the same field. Uh, I stayed one year with him and it was really cool. We did a lot of research from karyotypes to molecular biology. It was really cool. Nice. And did you have any one particular project or just like lots of different things you were working on? Yeah, I had uh, two main projects. I, I had one in a disease called Gaucher disease. It's uh, one of the most uh, prevalent rare diseases, neurodegenerative diseases, and uh, and then I had something on infertility and analyzing mutations in the chromosome Y that might be related to infertility in guys. Okay, so where you guys were sampling Brazilian humans? Brazilian people, yeah, guys that had problems with that, and in Gaucher disease, people that had, some of them already died because the disease doesn't have a cure. So we had all the sample from 10 years of uh, medical genetics service in the Hospital of Clinics in Brazil, University of Sao Paulo. And so were you actually interacting with people during that, or did you just look at the samples? Yeah, I would say that this is the coolest part of working in the biomedical sciences and medical fields, is that if you have interest, you can totally... uh, have contact with the patients and you can you feel really useful, right? Because you see, oh, actually what I'm doing might help these people and you see. And I met the families uh, of people. I met people that have infertility issues. 
uh, and how sad that was and everything. So, and my lab was associated with the, the, the medical genetic service in the hospital. So I could uh, be in the same environment as these physicians and uh, just participate in that. That's a really awesome experience as an undergraduate. So, and then you decide to stay in genetics for your master's of science, correct? Yes. When the time came, I decided to do the master and I applied in both uh, University of Sao Paulo and Federal University of Rio Grande do Sul, which is really in the south of Brazil. And I decided to go to South Brazil. They have a great service. There is a service that's, that is referenced in the whole Latin America so I decided to go there, and I worked with Professor Maria Luisa Saraiva Pereira. And then is when I started to work on metachromatic leukodystrophy, which is another neurodegenerative disease, a pretty bad one. Uh, there is no cure for the disease. People work on enzymatic reposition because it's an enzyme that is deficient, that is deficient, and people work gene therapy. But there is really no cure. And what I did was just to get all the patients that they had collected over the past 15 years since the beginning of the service and just analyze the gene that is deficient uh, in all these patients and know what was the deficiency, which is the mutation, which is the problem. So it's really what they call genotypic characterization of the cohort of patients. Yeah, so trying to figure out what part of the DNA is causing these terrible diseases. Yeah. Are they still working on these projects, or I, I assume they didn't find a cure quite yet? No, yeah. The people are still working there. Uh, I think my, I just published this paper uh, this year, which is really cool. But people are still getting new patients and increasing the sample because if we, as much as we can know about how the gene can be deficient in, in, in multiple ways, how the, the DNA can be broken in multiple ways, we can know more about the disease and play more on the gene therapy. Uh, so people are still working on that, yeah, in the group there. And so is as part of that research, that did that involve a lot of time in the lab? Mm, yes, yes. Basically, my uh, was all wet lab, like they call, right? Wet lab, like when you go to the bench and just pipette and just mix things and just isolate DNA and sequence DNA and... And you definitely wore a lab coat then. <laughs> lab coat, white. Yeah, and my advisor was really rigorous on that. So she had all the... She, everybody knows her because of that. She's really rigorous, which is great, and I think it should be. Yeah, no, that's really great. So then how did you decide to come to the United States for a degree? Yeah, I was doing medical genetics, and I was happy. I had an awesome lab, an awesome advisor. But I always, I always had this thing about studying evolution. And really the thing I think that didn't get me doing that because I was going to do biology after high school was really the thing like I should do something so that everybody's happy, including me. And I was okay enough with biomedical sciences. So, but I had this thought, I want to do some evolutionary human evolution studies. I have to do that. And I, when I, I, I was done with the master, I just decided to do. I was reading all this literature over my master and over my undergrad, like Professor Michael Tomazello, like Professor, uh, even like Professor Tim White work, I was following. Professor Tim White is a paleoanthropologist here. Uh, and came time came and I was like, I got to do, I got to do. And I started looking in Brazil, what people are doing, and I didn't find too much. 
Like, people are not doing too much, unfortunately. I study human evolution for human behavior and cognition. There is some studies, studies with capuchin monkeys and primate cognition, primate, but not really, like, thinking of how humans evolved. So it's like, okay, I think I have to go out and come back, even though I love Brazil and I do want to go back. Uh, and I want to be a professor there, where I thought, okay, I have to go out. And I contacted actually Professor Tim White here because one of the plans was like, okay, if I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to a cool place. And I was like, oh, the Bay Area is cool, so I'm gonna go there. I contacted him through email. Uh, I knew he was not, he doesn't do anything related to evolution of cognition, but I thought, oh, maybe he can tell me who does. And he told me about Terry, Terry Deacon, Terence Deacon, my advisor. And I contacted, I con actually first I, I checked his work and I found his book, The Symbolic Species. Mm -hmm. And I was in love with this book. I was like, this guy's great. This guy can help me. And I contacted him and he was really open and really receptive. And now he's my PhD advisor here. That's awesome. That's like pretty much a perfect uh, progression as you would want from. <laughs> I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So do you have any thoughts on why human evolution isn't studied as much in Brazil? I believe that it's because just like Japan now just abolished all the humanity schools, for example, I think people in Brazil are having this mentality of doing more and more technology and applied science and that are forgetting about uh, basic science in a lot of schools and there is a lot of funding for applied science. And so the professors kind of like just going to the applied science and just going to the technological studies because that is where you can find money easier, you know? Uh, and I know that, and that is a little scary, <laughs> but but I think I'm strong enough to do it. So you're hoping to change the frontier a little bit in Brazil when you go back? Yeah, this is my thought, is really to show how basic science, and there are, there are some people doing this, like Professor Susana Herculano Russo, she does uh, brain studies and number of neurons in the brains of different animals. And she's really fighting off that. And she's she has found some funding and her work is really well known in the whole world. And so I wanna join these people and to show that basic science is a, has a future too. So if you're just tuning in, you are listening to The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson and today I'm joined by anthropologist Madza. Uh, and so started out in genetics, and obviously interested in the human brain because you worked on neurodegenerative diseases <laughs> yeah. in humans and uh, you're interested in cognition. So these are all brain things. So then I have to ask, how do you end up with a dissertation that's focused on birds? Oh, yeah, that was <laughs> unexpected to me, too. Yeah, I was thinking, like, what I want to study. This field is so huge. What I want to study. And I had something about fear of mine. I was like, maybe I'm going to do fear of mine and, you know, just going to shimps and do this kind of work like Professor Tomazello does. But then I thought, no, I think the key to human evolution is really language. And I had this thought, and Professor Dico, my advisor here, is a big name in language evolution. And I was like, I think if I go into language evolution, I'll be happy enough because I think it's a big thing and it's a key to human evolution. And I decided to do that. And he presented me with this project uh, that he was thinking of starting with Professor Kazuo Konoya in University of Tokyo in Japan. 
and the project used birds and I was like what like the project used birds how is that and I started studying right I didn't say yes I started studying and looking to and I was just surprised to see how much how many analogies you find at so many levels between human language and bird song you find parallels in the genetic level you find parallels in the neural level like how the brain works you find parallels in the learning process of birdsong and human language you find parallels in the structure of language and the structure of birdsong so I was just really impressed and I was like I think I want to dig into this and see how far this goes like how because if you can use birds to study human language like we are so constrained right in, in terms of human cognition studies you we have so all the ethical problems that obviously should be there but if you have an animal model that you can work on and you can develop then you you have just a huge open space to work so this was how i decided to say yes to terry deacon and start this work so for those people who aren't familiar with the biology of birdsong, for example, is it's not just a genetic trait. It's not just something written into their DNA where they, they wake up, you know, they're born, hatch out, and then just start singing? No. Some birds, it is the case. Some birds, they don't learn. They are not, they call vocal learners. They don't learn. They, like you said, they just have this innate song. But for a lot of birds, including the birds that I study, they learn the song. So they depend on the social environment of all the birds and they learn from the, the tutor, uh, from the, another, the father usually. Uh, so they, they are born with some sketch of the song, but it's really the general, really like simple sketch. Uh, and then they learn from the tutor and they progress into a stable song when they are adults, which is really similar to humans, right? Like human kids, they, we don't have a sketch. Some people do believe we have, right? Some people believe language has an innate uh, content, but I'm on the side that, that people that don't believe in that. But let's say, yeah, uh, we are born, we don't have, we have really low innate content for language and we learn everything with our mom, our father and, and our like the social environment so this is a huge parallel and so do birds use language in similar ways as humans what are they doing or language <laughs> what are they doing with their their songs yeah the function of bird song and this is the main difference so there are limitations for how bird song can be a model for language and this is the main difference language is symbolic you can talk about things that are in the future you can talk all oh, remember way back then when we did this and so it's something that is really detached from the presence from the uh, from the present but bird song is what they call has a holistic meaning. It's about the state of the singer. It's about because it's uh, it's really like when the bird sings, it's really just to catch the attention of the female. So the meaning of the song, if you can put this way, is a holistic meaning. It's about the state of the singer. It's about how excited the bird is. There is no reference that the bird song points to like the bird doesn't when he doesn't there is no such a thing in the bird song as such, like house you know so this is one of the main difference and this is the point where bird song stops being a model and then this is the point when you go into velvet monkeys and monkeys and chimpanzees because then they have the vocalizations that are more referential 
And can birds tell about the health of other birds from listening to their song? Yes. So but when the bird sings, uh, the other bird understands the state of the singer, if the singer's health uh, or not. Uh, and then the female will choose the bird that has the most complex song because usually complexity of song is related to how fertile and how strong and how great the bird is. So in humans, it would be like, a, you know, maybe the guy who's been hitting the dictionary and can use the biggest words. You'd be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. seems like he knows what's going on. Yeah, I mean, we kind of do this, you know, like it's, a lot of people think like when they see someone speaking and they have a good discourse and a good speech, people feel like, oh, this person's awesome, you know, this person's smart and everything. So there is something about the performance in human speech. But in bird song, this is really the main and I would say the only thing. So I can definitely see why birdsong is a good model for human language. But how do you go about studying it? Yeah, in my study, there's multiple ways you can do behavioral studies. You can just watch the bird and like record the song, analyze the song. Um, but in my case, I have a, a system of birds that Professor Kazuo Kanoya discovered Uh and what happens that there was this bird, the white-backed munia, is a wild Chinese bird, uh, really popular, really in, in, in China. And this bird was imported 200 years ago into Japan by bird breeders. Uh, and they start breeding the bird for coloration, just for the feather color. And not really for the song, but unexpectedly, uh, the song became complex. Uh, so the white-backed munia, the wild bird has a simpler song than the domesticated bird. And the domesticated bird is called Bengalese finch. So, and this parallels what happened in human because we assume that our ancestor had more simple, simple uh, vocalizations, more similar to the other apes, right? That there was some learning, but the learning was more restricted. So just like the white-backed monia, our ancestors were like constrained in certain ways and we became this weird creature like we learn all the vocalizations i'm talking here and if someone asks me to repeat i'm i'm unable to repeat while chimpanzees have stereotyped vocalizations they always gonna have the same kind of vocalization for everything that they want to like refer to and the Bengalese finch, the domesticated bird, is much more like us. It learns the song. It will combine the, the song elements in very different ways every time it sings. So it's really uh, flexible. Uh, so it's a system that has some parallels with what we think that happened in human vocal evolution. And in my case, what I'm doing is really to study the genetic basis of this difference. So how the genes of white-backed monia, the white wild bird, are different from the genes of the domesticated bird and how this relates to this, the evolution of this ability of the domesticated of just learning the song and be so flexible compared to the wild. So do we have a good sense of which genes contribute to bird song, or how do you narrow in on those differences? Yes, we have recently Professor Eric Javs at the University of Duke he published a paper where he found he finds 50 genes that have a pattern of activation in the brains of songbirds that learn the song and humans. They are really similar. So we have this list of 52 genes. This book was published uh, in December of last year, so really recent. 
And we have all the genes that we know are related to voca vocal production, to vocal behavior in humans and in Neanderthals. Um, so we have some candidate genes, but in my research, I didn't want to get constrained by just looking to these genes. What I'm doing is really to analyze the whole genome of the domesticated and the whole genome of the wild bird and then see which are the differences. And once I get the differences, then I'll compare with what other people have found and with the difference we know in humans and other primates. Because we do have a lot of uh, data, genetic data for human chimpanzees, you know. So to see if we find the same, the same patterns of genetic change in humans compared to other primates. Well, you said Neanderthals, so you definitely piqued my interest there. How could we possibly know what genes Neanderthals had? Well, there is a lot of work on, I don't know if I, uh, fox picture, right? Like in how the fox picture Neanderthal. So you can analyze the sequence, there's the Neanderthal genome. And let's say, for example, I found a gene that is different in Bengalese finch than in white Bactonia, in the domesticated bird compared to the white bird. I can check the sequence of the genes, how the genes vary in Neanderthal compared to humans and all the primates. So there's some sorts of inferences you can do at the genomic level, at this gene sequence level. So some researchers are definitely thinking that based on the genetics, Neanderthals could yeah. produce vocalizations. Yeah, we don't know too much about how f different would be for humans, right? But yeah, but that uh, they had some sort of speech. Yeah, definitely. I would be interested in see how the genes that I found that are different in my birds would be look like in Neanderthals and compared to humans uh, because having the ability to produce vocalization doesn't mean that Neanderthals had the ability to learn. Maybe they had more innate contents. I don't know. You know, it's just when you go there, it's just, just really speculating a little. Yeah. So do you guys have bird colonies here or where are you getting your samples from? Oh, yeah. No, I went to Japan last year, January. I love Japan. Awesome. And Professor Kanaya has colons there, uh, and we are importing the samples. Actually, the samples are getting here next week after six months of fighting with the U.S. Uh, importation service. Because uh, Japan is, uh, I got the words, like, Japan is an area, endemic area of avian flu, and I'm trying to import avian samples. So it was really complex, but the samples are coming now, and they are from colonies of Professor Kanoya in his lab in Japan. So it's not Japan that's fighting against sending samples out. It's no. actually the U.S. fighting yeah. against bringing them in. Yeah, concerned with the avian flu. So they are going to test some samples and they are going to be clear, I'm sure of that, and we are bringing them here then. So that's awesome. That's really cool that you got to go to Japan to see the lab and the other half of the research project. Yeah, it was a great experience, yeah. Yeah, do you think you'll end up going back, or have, do you have all the samples you need? Assuming they get here, you have all the samples you need. No, I do have to go back, but not, this time not to Japan. I have to go to Taiwan, uh, the place where you find the wild bird, because wild birds, when you put them in captivity, they don't do well. They start having a lot of like behavioral problems. They are not used. They are used to be in the wild. So Professor Kanoya uh, supplies are not are going down, and uh, I want to go to Taiwan to get more samples and also to just restore his colonies of white-backed onions. Yeah. 
And so will you actually have to go out and find the wild birds yourself? Yeah, yeah, this is cool. I never did field work, so we have also some plans of um, just doing focal following, just doing behavioral studies in the wild. We don't have too much data on that. How do these birds behave in the wild? Professor Connor has collected some data, but I think when I go there, I'm going to do some field work, and I never did, and it's really exciting. Yeah, no, that's really cool. So once you run the genomes and you find the differences and you compare them, you get through all of that madness, do you think you would ever see yourself doing any experimental studies where you actually manipulate uh, the genes in the domestic or in the captive birds? I don't know because uh, I had a lot of personal conflict when I was doing this research. I had to take the brains of the birds, right? And of course, to take the brain, you have to sacrifice them. Of course, we did everything within the bioethics committee approval and the birds didn't suffer. But I had a lot of personal feelings with that. So I was uh, about tweaking the, the genes in the brain and making these changes. I I still don't know how I feel about that, you know, like just personally speaking, not that I'm against, uh, but just personally, like, I think maybe what I'm going to do probably is just to go into more and more the population of genetics, because for that, you really, you really just need blood. And so I think maybe I'll just follow into this path. Yeah, yeah you know, there are other scientists out there. There's a job for everybody. Yeah, right? yeah, every, yeah, there are people who can do and it's fine. Uh, well, you're tuned into 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley, The Graduates here. My name's Tesla Munson, and today I'm speaking with anthropologist Madza Faria Virgins. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I take a breath each time, but apparently I'm doing a, a good enough job with, the, with her name. So, you know, you've definitely had a really unique experience coming from Brazil and, you know, getting these different degrees and really different topics. Do you have any advice for students, either United States students or international students who are interested in research? Yeah, it's actually mentoring is something that I've been involved a lot. I love to mentor and I think that if you want to do research, you should go for what is your interest. Yeah, I think for the Brazilian people, don't be afraid. If you want to do something and this something doesn't happen in Brazil, don't be afraid. Don't think that, oh, I'm not going to talk to people in UC Berkeley or Harvard. Or, because a lot of times they are more open than you think. So just go for it. Just email the people you want to work with. Don't be afraid of the transition. There is a lot of differences uh, indeed. But don't be afraid of the transition. Just go and do it. Yeah. And what about, I always ask people if there, there are any issues in their field that the public should know about. Is there anything in anthropology or genetics that you think uh, you, that you'd like to tell the public a little bit about? Yes, I think a lot of people that I talk with, since I moved to anthropology, uh, I have felt this, that people are more familiar with genetics than anthropology. You talk, oh, I'm from genetics, people understand. I say I'm from anthropology, people like you have to remember then of what anthropology is. And I think I just want to remind everybody that anthropology is a great field, is, an, is a whole field dedicated to humans and what we do. And you have several branches of anthropology. You have sociocultural anthropology, you have linguistic anthropology that studies people's languages, and you have biological anthropology that studies human biological variation, how we are biologically different from each other, and human evolution, how we evolved, and you have archaeology. 
So it's a huge, it's a great field and has a tons of things to do. Yeah, no, you have done a really great job integrating these different sciences. I know that, yeah, when a lot of people think about anthropology, it's, it's as you said, it's the study of humans, but, you know, there are so many ways you can study human evolution and human variation. So it's yeah. really neat that you found, you know, birds as yeah. a great analogy for that. Yeah. So uh, as we're sort of wrapping up here at the end of our time, do you have anything else you would like to tell us? I know you do. So <laughs> Yeah, I do, actually. I'm running a crowdfunding campaign on my research. Uh, and uh, it's the website experiment.com. And I'm you can contribute with ideas about how could I make my campaign better. You can contribute with any amount of money for the research. And you can just, if you want to just know more about the research, you can go into the campaign, contact me, and I will be willing to just clarify and just explain my research to you. And I think crowdfunding is something that is happening now and a lot of students are doing. And it's something great. It's a way of getting involved with mean, meaningful uh, research. Uh, and it's really cool. I mean, uh, all the people that have been collaborated with my research are having a great time. I'm, I'm having a great time. I'm doing all these publicity things and just like talking about my research a lot. And it's, it's really cool to just be engaged in research. And you can do that. You can help science to progress. So it's a good way for the public to really understand more about your project and yeah. get involved in research in whatever way that they can. Yeah, yeah. And you said experiment.com? Experiment.com. And the name of the campaign is Birdsong and the Evolution of Human Language. Birdsong and the Evolution of Human Language. Yep. That, that is definitely what we talked about. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Madza. It's been a pleasure having you on the show here. Thank you for this space, Tesla. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, you know, for those of you who would like a recap, I, my name's Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates. And today I've been speaking with anthropologist Madza Furia Virgins in the Department of Anthropology here at UC Berkeley. She's come a long way from genetics to anthropology, but she's combining those fields to try and understand the evolution of human language by using birdsong as a model and looking at domestic and wild birds and comparing their genetics. And it's really cool and interesting stuff. And yeah, crowdfunding on experiment.com. So Lots of great work coming out of Madza and anthropology here at Berkeley. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And again, you've been tuned into the graduates here on CalEx. My name is Tesla Munson, and stay tuned. This is 90.7 FM, K A L X, Berkeley. <laughs>